my concentration using the part-by-part meditation method is much better than observing the breath, but I'm quite slow. In 45 minutes, it's very difficult for me to get through the whole body. Should I consciously go faster, or will I get faster with practice? Well, both are possible. If one gets the sensation, one can just drop it and go on. If it takes long or longer to get any sensation, one has to stay on that spot longer, then it wouldn't pay to go faster. But if one gets a sensation, one just keeps going. And one does get much faster with practice. That's quite true. So if after 45 minutes the bell goes quickly out through either the hands or the feet, whichever is the closest. When you were talking about the past being the past and done with, you also made a serious comment in a joking manner goes against all of Western psychology. I'm a great believer in a bit of humor. Um, <laughs> being a Western psychotherapist who tries to stay present <laughs> and aware with my clients, attending to whatever arises in the moment, what about the clients who have been badly abused in the past? And what arises for them is a need to talk about those things. Do you think that they can be helpful, or are you seeing no value in Western psychotherapy? In the USA, many of us are finding value in Buddhism along with psychotherapy. Are these opposites? No, they're not opposites. Psychotherapy can be extremely helpful, particularly, of course, to people who find it difficult to... um, um, have a harmonious and balanced daily life and many people do find that very difficult so it can be very helpful and to talk about their past yes it can be like a catharsis getting it out and then the thing to do is to forgive and forget the first one first to forgive if one has been abused and to realize that Not only that the past is past, but that the person who abused and the person who was abused are no longer in existence. They are long gone. They are changing every second. And obviously this part of uh, uh, Western psychotherapy is a very, uh, well, here, not only in America, here in Germany, it's a very strong feature of it. And slowly, slowly, some changes are coming. But yes, talking about it, people do want to talk about those things and that can be very helpful. To give oneself meta, does this not mean to support the illusion of the self? As long as one knows who's getting up in the morning, one also knows who's sitting here meditating. And the one who's sitting here meditating needs love. Without that, the one who's sitting here meditating won't meditate very well. So we'll just get on with giving ourselves love and compassion as long as we still think it's us doing that. One day when 
the path has been very thoroughly practiced. Metta, loving kindness, is completely impersonal. It's just a quality of the heart. So, in other words, if we were enlightened, the quality of the heart would be there, but it wouldn't be an I or a me that's doing it. Could you please explain how to bow to Buddha Dhamma Sangha at the beginning and end of a meditation? How should the hands be placed? Is the sequence, sorry, the sequence forehead, throat, chest, and what do the three positions represent? Um, it's not the throat, it's the mouth. <laughs> it's... Um, the forehead represents the thinking, the mouth is the speaking, and the, uh, the chest area is the action. So it's with thought, speech, and uh, action. And uh, traditionally it's done in a kneeling position. And uh, what else? It's, uh, yes, it's done in a kneeling position. And the, uh, it doesn't have to be, um, the, head, the hands don't have to be put into those three positions. They're held together and then put down on the ground and the head on the ground. What is the name of the meditation method we are practicing here? Watching the breath is called anapanasati, which means mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. And the one where we attend to the feelings and sensations, we usually call sweeping. We can call it, if we like Pali, we can use Vedananupasana, but it's a bit more difficult with a foreign language, so we can call it sweeping. The other one's walking meditation. Loving kindness meditation is called Metabhavana, if one likes Pali, but if one wants it in English, it's loving kindness meditation. What do you mean by trance? How does it differ from altered states of consciousness and or from absorption states? Why is it not any good? (laughs) Trance is a state of fog and states of fog we've got anyway. We don't have to come to meditation course for that. <laughs> they are um, a constant. They are a, a human problem, huh? states of fog. So um, they're quite pleasant, actually. And uh, some people enjoy that a lot. doesn't have to necessarily be in a real trance. But you sit there, supposedly watching the breath, the mind has made up some fantasies. It gets a bit tired. The fantasies isn't ready to fall asleep, but it gets into a foggy state. And that's rather pleasant. Um, it's an altered state of consciousness, all right, but it doesn't help one to recognize anything. It's, uh, it's of course, not called an altered state of consciousness because if we were to call it that, we would really get into difficulties with our conceptual verbalization of altered states of consciousness are of course something which one is actually uh, hoping to have so um, it's not any good because it's fog 
and uh, it differs from a proper altered state of consciousness um, because in an altered state of consciousness we know what's going on in trance we don't and the way to know it whether one has had an altered state of consciousness or a trance is after it's finished if one is dead tired and wants to go to bed it was trance <laughs> and if one has a lot of energy and feels like one would like to continue the meditation it was an altered state of consciousness it's quite easy to know but it's, it's not unpleasant it's, it's rather a pleasant sort of um, um, dozing foggy um, non-verbal um, uh, state where the mind isn't really awakened aware so we don't want to practice it huh? if we can possibly help it in part by part sweeping today I had a sharp pain in my back that repeatedly distracted my attention from other areas of my body. When I came to that part of my back and put my attention <clears throat> where the pain had been much of the time, it disappeared, but came back as soon as I stopped attending to that <laughs> spot. Um, can you comment on that? Yes, in the sweeping if one hasn't practiced it very much, it's very often the case that one has gone past the spot and then the spot that one has passed is the one that one can feel. And uh, so one just has to make do with that and continue practicing. <clears throat> the mind has not become uh, sharply focused yet because that's a practice. And so the um, having gone going through the body very, one might actually already be at the chest and all of a sudden it's a, a throat that comes up or here in the back one has gone past it so if, it, if one puts the attention on the spot it came to that part it disappeared and, well maybe one can get rid of this particular pain by really putting one's attention on it and staying with it maybe it will go away it's possible but very often it just so happens one goes past and then it comes please discuss the terms wholesome and unwholesome relative to actions and mind objects mind objects in a sense, these terms seem to exist outside of intentionality. Well, that would be pretty dreadful, wouldn't it? Why, why do they exist outside of our intentions? Is that supposed to mean possibly that we can't help being either wholesome or unwholesome? If that were the case, we would be exempt from karma-making. But that's not the way it is. We're not exempt from karma-making. Whether we know the intention or not, that's a second question. That's something entirely different. Most people have no clue what their intentions are. They wake up when the action is done and they see that there's something 
either dreadful happened or something entirely different from what they expected haven't examined their own intentions. This only comes about that we examine our own intentions when we are mindful enough to know what we're thinking. Then we examine our intentions, our motivations. It's called clear comprehension. In Pali, Sampanyanya, it goes together with Sati, with mindfulness. And it needs to be practiced. And the first step in clear comprehension, and I don't want to go into it any further, we are met at another time, is to find the purpose of what we're thinking, saying, and doing. It needs a bit of extra time. <coughs> Impulsive thinking, saying, and doing is still with intention, but we won't know it. So to examine the purpose. And the difference between wholesome and unwholesome, well, the ones that are connected with hate and greed are unwholesome. And the ones that are connected with love and compassion and helpfulness, they are the wholesome ones. And every person has a conscience. Whether we listen to that conscience or not, we've got it. And that conscience tells us quite clearly what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. And as we examine that, we will also find that even if we imagine something is this way or that way, we can always find the ego content in it. So any of that is available to anyone who goes inside and really becomes aware. Motivation, intentions, are our karma making. Without that, there wouldn't be any karma. And the question is, must one get become acquainted with the list in the Abhidhamma? The answer is no. The list in the Abhidhamma, they uh, describe 89 states of consciousness. One does not have to know them by heart in order to know what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. And it's not concerned with moral values because moral values are different in each society. The moral value of anything that we know to be wholesome or unwholesome is strictly connected with our lovingness and our compassion and our lack of egocentricity. The more we lack that, the more we're likely to think, speak and act in a wholesome way. And then the last sentence is, I thought all dhammas were empty. Is that supposed to refer to wholesome and unwholesome? Well, if it is, there are two levels. One is relative truth and one is absolute truth. And as long as we've got an I, a me, we're living on the level of relative truth. 
and we need to look at everything from the standpoint of relative truth and then nothing is empty it's all got something in it <laughs> but on the level of absolute truth it's something entirely different but there's no use talking about it and there's no use trying to bring the two together they're like um, um, two levels like the second and the third level in the house you can't bring them together one is here and one is there there's no way that you can walk on this one and be on that one <laughs> a practical question on sleep and meditation since two days my sleep never gets really deep I'm just dozing hear the church bells every time and am a bit worried that I do not fall fast asleep so far however I'm not exhausted is this a consequence of meditation or do I need to do something about it uh, it is a consequence of good and uh, strong concentration and the only thing to do about it is not to worry about it but to accept it as an extremely good sign uh, the better one can meditate the less sleep one needs the mind gets its only proper rest in meditation it never gets a proper rest in sleep it's always doing something so if, it ha if there has been strong concentration it's a very good sign and under no circumstances to worry about it but to beware of the fact that it can be very well the kind of sleep which I can't tell from this can be the very kind of sleep that we call mindful sleep and if it is that it appears to be as if one isn't sleeping and yet when one gets up one is totally rested it's mindful sleep it can be, I don't know but in any case not to worry about it it's fine I'm a greed type of person also my underlying mood is usually quite joyous and positive but whereas, whereas I, can, sorry, I can recognize greed in quite a lot of my actions I still see my positive mood only positive please can you explain in more detail the connection between a positive underlying mood and greed a positive underlying mood does not have to be greed it can be connected to inner joyousness particularly if one knows how to meditate if one can meditate and is able to arouse joy in the meditation which would be the second jhana second meditative absorption one can do that also without any outer condition but if one can examine oneself more closely and one can see that this positive underlying mood is based sometimes very often on hope on future on something that has come through the senses or that one would like to have come through the senses then one knows it's connected to greed so it is it can be examined with a sense contact or with just that feeling of being within oneself where joy actually lives. That's not so easy to find. 
but can be done with mindfulness, especially by someone who can meditate quite well. Can the meditation process be compared to the dying process? Well, in a way, yes. Of course, in another way, no. But um, in German, we have a lovely way of saying that. In German, yes and no is ja and nein, so we say jein, and then we've got the both together. Um, in the dying process, there has to be a total letting go. One is forced to. I haven't got any choices. You've got to let go. And this letting go is quite physical. But uh, if the mind is opposed to it, it's a bit of um, a battle. But if the mind's not opposed to it, but goes with that letting go, then it's peaceful. In the meditation, we have a letting go. And it also has a physical aspect to it. So it is, it has a connection there. However, I would imagine that if someone who hasn't really um, come to terms with his or her own death thinks of meditation as similar to the dying process, it's going to become more difficult rather than easier because there's fear. But one of the things, of course, we can guarantee that uh, it's not likely that anybody's going to die during the meditation. So <laughs> it's all right to let go. Hmm? Is it normal if one feels sick in the stomach after loving-kindness contemplation? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say yes. <laughs> but only for a person who has a fair bit of trouble with that one. (laughs) It's something where the mind is probably getting a bit upset about all those things that it finds within. So it could be considered to be a fairly good sign. Um, I would suggest that if that happens, to immediately go to the sweeping part by part and try to let go more of any of those uh, unpleasant sensations. I often <clears throat> sorry, can concentrate much better when I close my eyes, even in walking meditation, but one can't go through life with closed eyes. <laughs> well, one doesn't usually go through life meditating, does one? Um, do you think it will get better the more one practices? Well, the concentration may, is, is concerned with meditation, I presume. So to close one's eyes in meditation is fine. And in walking meditation, if one is sure there isn't a tree in the way, that's fine. <laughs> no problem. Just make sure that, you know, the path is clear. And other than that, uh, concentrating... Um, with mindfulness mindfulness is not exactly the same as concentration it does have of course concentration in it but uh, mindfulness and daily living yes we have to keep our eyes open and uh, because I mean it just doesn't work any other way 
So yes, it's everything gets better with practice. Whatever it may be, whether it's uh, this um, sickness in the stomach after loving kindness contemplation, or whether it's concentration, everything gets better. Um, one just has to practice. Since ignorance is the first cause of birth and death cycle, what caused ignorance? Is ignorance always there without a cause? Well, this is one of the uh, four questions that the Buddha would not answer. Uh, He didn't answer the question, what influence a Buddha has, what influence a person in jhanas has, um, the karmic connections, and the, so to say, beginning of the universe, or the beginning of the life cycle. wouldn't answer those. He said, none of these four things contribute to our enlightenment. And when we are enlightened, we'll know anyway. So, um, in the um, dependent origination, Ignorance is called the first cause, but it isn't um, necessarily, and you will find it back there on that blue thing there, the wheel of life. It's, uh, I can't see everything that's written there, but that is the dependent origination. Um, you will see that it's a circle, and a circle has no beginning, no end. And that's all it is, it's a circle. And we do usually, when we, when we explain that, that wheel of life, we do start with ignorance. It's a good start. But we could start anywhere within that circle and still come to the same thing. So this is the um, um, only answer that uh, applies to that. It's a circle. It just goes round and round and round. Is rebirth a a choice or a conscious decision by the dead or a definite result based on one's karma? Well, it's both. The, uh, The conscious decision or choice is made because of the craving to be. When there is no craving to be, it's impossible to be reborn. So the craving to be only disappears for the fully enlightened one. And the fully enlightened one cannot have any craving to be because there's nobody there to crave. It's really very simple. But Because there are so many books, it's getting more and more complicated. (laughs) And there are also so many opinions. So, as long as there is somebody there who's dying or has been living, and there, there is the craving to be, and that is the conscious choice that we make. We can call it an unconscious choice because most people don't even know that they're craving to be. And it's also a result based on one's karma because as long as we're making karma, there's somebody there making karma. 
And as long as there's somebody there making karma, there will be somebody there to be reborn. When there's nobody there, nobody makes karma, nobody gets reborn. It's impossible. How can one get out of birth and death cycle? Yeah, well, that's a $64,000 question, of course. (laughs) That's what we're concerned with. That's all we're concerned with. That's what we're trying to do here. But, I mean, it doesn't work this fast, you know. And once got out, is it possible to come back to a cycle again? Now, the answer to that is just plain no. Um, If there's nobody there, nobody can come back. To, To get out of birth and death cycle, that's what the whole practice is about. But one has to realize that as long as one wants to be here, For any reason whatsoever, may it be as justified as anything, or such a good and wonderful reason like becoming an excellent meditator, helping the world, uh, making peace, whatever it may be. As long as I want to be here, so long I'm not out of that birth and death cycle. Naturally, a good reason for being here is much more preferable to all the usual reasons, but um, once, once having got out, there's nobody there to come back in, which is really a great consolation. <laughs> oh, I have to do, translate these. Can knowledge, which would be useful today, but is not part of the Buddhist tradition, For instance, the meaning of dreams, could we not get that from other enlightened ones? Does not every enlightened one have the same knowledge as the Buddha? Or are there different stages of enlightenment? Well, yes, there are different stages of enlightenment, but who would know which stage anybody has reached? One has had to reach exactly that same stage. I said that already once, but I'll say it again. Only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We know what it's like to be angry. So somebody comes near us who's angry, we know that person is angry. We've experienced it. We know exactly what it's like. But we don't know when we're in front of a Buddha that that's a Buddha because we haven't experienced to be enlightened. So we don't know what the different um, people that may be around, whether they have this uh, grade of enlightenment or not. Um, Certainly an enlightened person can help one, there's no doubt about it, if one has a good karma to um, be taught by them. And... um, And it's not a matter of knowledge. Here the German word for knowledge is used, wisdom. It's not that at all. It's wisdom, which in German is Weisheit and not wisdom. So I'm saying that German for the person who has written it. It's not knowledge at all. Knowledge has absolutely nothing to do with it. There were people enlightened in the Buddhist day who, in fact, has a very nice story about a chap who was so dull 
in his mind that he couldn't remember even three lines of teaching. (laughs) And the the Buddha finally decided, well, that was useless to teach him anything. So he gave him the task of um, cleaning a white piece of cloth of all its spots. Keep uh, cleaning and cleaning and cleaning, which he did. There was no Uh, difficulty for him to understand what to do and it finally dawned on him that he was actually supposed to clean his inner being and he eventually did become enlightened without knowing any of the teaching so it's not knowing it's wisdom and one could say yes any enlightened one would have the same wisdom but not necessarily or probably not at all the same knowledge in the part by part method I, it became clear to me that only um, sensations and emotions exist and none of them were me there were often disturbing thoughts which had as their content the ego-supporting stories from the past and the future. The question is, what method, with what method can I inspect the contents of the thought in respect of me? The content of thought is not the um, most pertinent aspect of me. It's the belief and the feeling that this is my thought. And as long as we believe and then also, of course, feel that this is my thought, and sometimes we even believe that It's so clever, nobody else could possibly have it. (laughs) Or the opposite. We also do that. We think the negative uh, aspect. As long as we believe it's my thought, so long there's a me. But when we start seeing with an inner vision, which doesn't mean pictures, the inner reality, that thoughts come and go, And they never say, this is me. They come and they go. But there is this very much ingrained attitude within, which doesn't usually even question the fact that it's my thought. Particularly when we react. Not when we dream up something. It's not quite as strong then. But when we react, it's obviously me getting angry. It's obviously me wanting to do something. It's the ownership. The ownership of all those things which arise. And that is a very um, uh, important investigation and uh, could be done naturally as a contemplation. and can be very helpful when we see it for what it is 
we will see that it's nothing but movement. Constant movement. Extremely tiring. One of these days, one then also knows how tiring thinking is. And one doesn't use it so much anymore, unless it's necessary. Obviously, there are times when it's necessary. We can stand up and stretch our legs. meditation room this afternoon it took me one and a half minutes to go from what had been quite a deep meditative calm to a feeling of irritation at the way someone was blowing their nose (laughs) how is this possible it can't really have been very deep calm can it well actually it can it can have been deep calm but what wasn't deep enough was loving kindness and compassion. <laughs> so it's, uh, we know that the calm meditation is a very important aspect, but it isn't enough on its own. So for the one who's asking this, start and finish each meditation with loving kindness and compassion for yourself and the people around you, and as many people as you like to include, but particularly, of course, those who are having a cold. (laughs) (laughs) What's the difference between feelings and emotions? And thank you very much for the tools you've given. They're of great benefit to me, and doing them makes me happy. Um, the difference between feeling and emotion. Feeling is sort of like the um, overall category, and emotion is that what is more on the mental side, and then we have sensation, which is on the physical side. So if you want to be very exact in our concepts, and it does help to do that, the feeling is both sensation and emotion. And then we distinguish between the physical sensation and the mental emotion. But of course, when speaking and talking about it, it very often happens, and I've noticed that to happen to me, that I'm using feeling and emotion alternatively. And uh, so, again... um, actually and exactly it should be said it's an emotion or it's a sensation and both are feelings but it doesn't always happen that way this morning you talked about the impermanence of all that exists where does that niggling feeling come from that causes a search for nibbana or freedom latent or explicit in all that exists oh well I'm not sure that there is a niggling feeling that causes a search for Nibbana in all that exists is there feeling supposed to be in everything that exists or Nibbana let's put the sentence differently where does that niggling feeling come from that causes a search for Nibbana or freedom which is latent or explicit it comes from dissatisfaction 
And that dissatisfaction is not permanent, is it? You're not constantly dissatisfied, only now and then. Maybe mornings and evenings or something like that. Isn't there a force at work which can be called permanent? Well, (laughs) everything that exists is moving. There There isn't anything that doesn't have the characteristic of the particle that comes together and falls apart, no matter what force or whatever you like to call it. However, if you want to find something that is permanent, but which no person, as long as they think of themselves as a person, can experience, you can call it either Nibbana, you can call it the Godhead, you can call it anything you want, but you can't experience it as long as you're there. Not physically, emotionally there. In the Buddha's words, there is the deed, but no doer. There is suffering, but no sufferer. There is the path, but no one to enter it. There is Nibbana, but no one to attain it. And yet he spent 45 years teaching how to get to Nibbana. A lovely Zen paradox, isn't it? (laughs) The crucifixion of Jesus and the... um, I have to translate, sorry. And the um, salvation or the uh, liberation from all sin because of his death, what is that in Buddhist view? Well, the... uh, being released from all sin, it has very much uh, similarity to the Bodhisattva ideal, the Bodhisattva ideal which uh, has within it the um, practice, which in Tibetan Buddhism is called Tonglin, taking all the unhappiness of people, all their sorrows, into your own heart and dissolving them. Whether anyone single person can do it the kind of persons we are is questionable but a great person a great master can do far more than we can how should one act when doubts come up strong doubts should one contemplate directly on this subject or should one be even extremely mindful so that the doubts disappear because one is in the very moment If one can do the latter, that would be great. If one can be in the moment with the breath or with the walking or with whatever is happening and thereby drop whatever it is that's disturbing, that would be excellent. Most people can't do that. Most people, when they have doubts, they have to work with the doubt. The opposite of doubt is trust. And trust and confidence our love. So one of the um, good ways of substituting with the opposite is to have a loving-kindness meditation right then and there, at that particular moment, for oneself, for what one is doing, for the people around one, for whatever it is that one can think of at that time. 
it would be easier than just to drop it. But if one can drop it, by all means. How does daily meditation practice strengthen the mind? Do the thoughts, sankaras, the thoughts in other words, gradually grow weaker? Or does present moment consciousness get stronger? Or is this not definable or explainable? Everything the Buddha taught is definable and explainable. We have in our tradition five mudras, hand movements of the Buddha. And one of those hand movements that we can see in many of the statues is the left hand open with the palm outward. And that means no secrets. Everything open. The Buddha said about himself, I've never taught with a closed fist. I've always taught, taught with an open hand. Everything he taught is definable and explainable. He was the most pragmatic of teachers. How does the meditation practice strengthen the mind? Well, <laughs> by doing it. But <laughs> I think the question is, why does it strengthen the mind? Huh? Um, the thoughts, do they grow weaker? I wouldn't think so. On the contrary. But the, the thinking which is distracting, that eventually disappears because one has learned to stay put. You can look upon it as, well, the Buddha compared it to an axe which has been sharpened. If you have a and as it's sharpened, it has a strength to cut through the illusion. Today I try to investigate the impermanence of my thoughts. They came and vanished, and sometimes arose a stronger one that seemed to be me. Question about whether it's really me. All those thoughts denied that. No one I could really keep in mind, not one I could really keep in mind for a longer time. Then the question arose, who is investigating the thoughts? That also denied to be me. It was the observer, but didn't want to be me. In fact, no one was there except the exclamation, that's me or mine, was the expression. So the owner is the craving for being, an underlined, strong feeling inside, the one I used to call me. I want to be here, be someone, someone special, a good contemplating mind, for instance. Is it right that me is nothing but craving for being? And if so, how can I use it? It's absolutely correct. Craving for being does create that illusion. How to use it? Well, <laughs> give up craving for being huh? <laughs> but that's not so easily done I think one of the best ways of investigating this further is to see the problems that one gets into every time that the me is especially strong it doesn't just crave to be it craves to be someone it craves to be something it craves to be 
better than others, know more than others, be important, have success, get results, all sorts of things. And it also clings to the past and the future. So when we can recognize all those facets which arise out of that craving for being, we can see that every single one of them is dukkha. And then there comes that very strong urge, some vigor in Pali, the uh, urgency to really practice steadily meditation, purification, and the real insight into the fact that with the impermanence that was noticed here of the thoughts which kept coming and going, there is no solidity, there is transparency. And when we can see that, that there is transparency and no solidity, it becomes easier and easier to give up our clinging to the one we think we are. The opposite of Nibbana is clinging. So what we can investigate is, what am I clinging to? But it is quite rightly seen here in this question, the craving for being, that's what we're clinging to. Everybody has it, from the smallest ant and mosquito and fly to the biggest elephant. Everybody wants to be. Nobody wants to be killed. So that doesn't mean that we need to be killed in order to see this. It just means that we can actually, eventually, give up and give in. And when we give up and we give in, then some of this loosens up, slowly, slowly. A recent experiment with atomic particles demonstrated that they most frequently emerged at the holes which were being watched. At a level far beyond chance, could this be another result of our yearning and craving? Uh, not as far as I know. <laughs> as far as I know, in physics, one has, in quantum physics, one has found out that the observer is the participant. I have already mentioned that, but that's quantum physics. And since the observer that's observing at these holes is the participant, then whatever happens, happens where the observer is standing because he's participating. And that's actually what's happening there. Um, is nothing real? Not the trees, the animals, the birds, the earth. Are they all are they all the product of our craving? And if they are, do they disappear when we truly recognize the nothingness of the universe? <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to breathe. <laughs> no. Um, this is a not uncommon misconception. Um, very often, um, particularly happens when people hear the word maya, in, which is used in Hinduism, about illusion, everything's illusion, nothing's real. Um, the Buddha doesn't say that. He doesn't say uh, nothing is real. 
He says there are two kinds of reality. There's relative and there's absolute. Now in relative reality, each tree stands by it on its own, each person sits on a separate pillow, each one looks different, everybody is important in their own right, and everybody likes to be happy, and there's a me, and there's a you, and there's a us, and there's a them, there's yesterday and tomorrow, and there's a whole world of duality. That's relative reality. It's quite true. I mean, all you have to do is open your eyes, look around, and then you see all these different people. So, can't be untrue. Now, an enlightened one, if he came in here, he'd also see all these different people. There's no question about it. What else would he be doing? And, but, what is not real is our imagination, our thought system, our ideas that there is a solid entity to be found. That's not real. But that there's a person sitting there? Sure. That there's a tree and a bird and a pigeon and church bells? How can that not be real? But there's no solid entity, identity in any of that. So we don't really, nothing disappears. Our viewpoint disappears. Our opinion disappears. And our feeling that I am different and special and separated, that disappears. This may be naive, concrete thinking. I seem to be missing a few parts. Perhaps most of this puzzle. What did the Buddha say about no thingness? It's spelled like with little dashes in between. Uh, what are duality and non-duality, and are they connected to nothingness? Oh, I think I've already answered that. The duality is our relative reality in which we live, and in which we have to make a living, in which we have to do the necessary things to support this body, and in which we meet each other. But non-duality arises when we can see that there are actually absolutely no boundaries. Nothing is bound by anything. It's all flowing into each other. We will do another contemplation tomorrow, which may help to um, actualize that a little more than just words. We'll do the contemplation on the four elements. I think the mind continues to live even after the body is dead. Does the mind ever die? Well, it's quite true that the mind is not the personal mind, does not die if we believe ourselves to be a person. And because of that, because of that craving to be, there's rebirth. Craving to be. But if there's no craving to be, and if the reality of no personal mind has been seen, then personal mind no longer exists after death. In fact, it disappears already at enlightenment before death. And it is nothing but universal mind, even though it may sit in a personal body.
That's a bit difficult. Never mind. <laughs> Next course. <laughs> what is mind? What is consciousness? What's the difference between the two? It said different parts to this question, so I think I'll answer each part separately so I don't have to reread it then. The mind consists of four bits, four parts, has four constituents, they're called the four aggregates in Pali, the Khandas, and they are the sense consciousness, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then feeling, which is a result of sense contact, then perception, which is labeling, and then our reaction to all that, which are our thoughts. So we have four parts of mind. And consciousness in this connection means sense consciousness. But the word in Pali, Vinyana, and the word consciousness has other connotations. It also has the connotation of the difference between being unconscious and conscious. And it also has a connotation of higher levels of consciousness and lower levels of consciousness. All that is also part of mind. But in when we describe mind, we use sense consciousness. If there is no I, who has respect for Buddha Dhamma Sangha? The one who feels it. Anyone who feels it has respect. And if I feel to be a me, then it's a me. And if I don't feel to be a me, then it's respect. Who becomes master of the mind or what becomes master of the mind? The mind. The question would never be answered by the Buddha because the question is wrongly put. There's no who. Mastering the mind is effort effort just effort thoughts are just coming and going and the mind is distracted who wants to be distracted nobody isn't that right does anybody want to be distracted or is everybody just distracted I mean just look at it for a moment who wants to be distracted nobody and who is distracted? Everybody. <laughs> so, who masters the mind? Put it around the other way and you'll see it's an absurdity. It doesn't work. It's just lack of training, that's all. It's just a matter of time. How do I know, or how can I recognize what all this uh, chatter which of the chatter in the mind I should take seriously and, and believe. <laughs> well, how about trying to take none of it seriously? <laughs> that we don't have to discriminate. Just nothing, none of it. And then just try to concentrate. And then let it chatter again and say to the mind, chatter, chatter, come back. And don't take anything seriously. Well, that would work for meditation, doesn't it? In daily life, you take seriously everything that's loving, compassionate, and helpful. That one can take seriously. I've met some ordained American Zen women teacher 
and have read about a number of Vajrayana non-American teachers. In the Noah Friedman's book, Meeting with Remarkable Women, about Buddhist teachers, there are lay teachers of Vipassana, and I believe you are the only one that's a Theravada nun. Uh, I know you led a nunnery in Sri Lanka for Western women, so there must be some others. No, not necessarily. Uh, Western women are not necessarily Western nuns. Um, Parapudua Nuns Island, I established that in Sri Lanka for lay women that wanted to practice for a longer period and, of course, for those who were to be ordained. There were only two Western women ordained there and one Sri Lankan, and the others were all there just for three months, six months, a year, year and a half. So um, I wasn't a great rush to be become a nun. Why do you think that there are so few Americans or Western Theravada nuns teaching this path as compared to other Buddhist disciplines? Well, as far as I know, there aren't all that many nuns, Western or American, teaching any of these paths. Um, Some, yes. And um, there are a number I'm not sure about the number, but there are well, possibly ten or so. Theravada nuns, Western ones, at Amravati in England. And there are two living in Sri Lanka. There's, uh, they don't all come to mind now. But the most of them are in England. And uh, there aren't that many women teachers around at all. That's why Lenore had a hard time getting that book together. Is it beneficial to fast, particularly during retreats? It's very beneficial to fast, but one should only do it during a retreat if one is an experienced person in fasting and knows one's body well enough to know exactly what to do. Otherwise, one should not burden the mind also with the body. Mind has enough to do trying to concentrate. So it is very beneficial to fast, yes. It is uh, a renunciation, part of renunciation. And as I explained this morning, we are on the pathway of renouncing the strong egocentricity. And anything that helps us to renounce anything will be helpful. But in a retreat, only if one is very experienced with that and not burden the mind unnecessarily. When I do, part by part, my mind strains to feel sensation where there doesn't seem to be any. Also, in breathing meditation, my mind strains to follow the breath, which wreaks havoc with its natural flow. And yet, when I relax off my mind, I easily find myself distracted and shattering. How to remedy this? How to develop receptivity and ease of the mind without losing its acuteness. Well, it's actually strictly a matter of practice. But straining is a result of re- <laughs> result of result thinking. I want to achieve something. I want to get something. That has to be dropped because it will not work at all. 
There is nothing to achieve, there's nothing to get, there's everything to let go of. I told you already the key word for the spiritual path is letting go. So straining to do something will be extremely detrimental to any meditation practice. In fact, it produces usually a headache. And uh, it might even produce a, a, a very uh, a backache and, and a headache. And by the time one has done that for three days, one decides this is not for me. It's Straining is trying to get. Spiritual life, meditation, is trying to get let go. Whatever it is that's in the mind, let go. It doesn't matter what it is, just let it go. And go with the flow. Just let it flow. Breath flows, sensation flow, mind flows with it. Just be with it. There's nothing to do. Just being there is the, really the most important thing. I have often music in my mind. This isn't really unwholesome, is it? <laughs> so why should I try to substitute it? <laughs> well, it depends when it's happening. In daily life, there's nothing unwholesome about having music in the mind. Nothing at all. It's much better than having hate or greed. Much preferable. But then if you want to meditate, well, then, of course, I would try to substitute it. I wouldn't try to keep it. But on the other hand, I have also come across a very rare cases, but some, where it was possible to use that music, which is not actually sound, but just in the mind, to become so concentrated that one was, that the person was able to go into the meditative absorption. Because that was the thing that really interested that person. A musician, of course. So, um, in daily life, no, uh, let it be. It's better than uh, being concerned with the things that one wants or wants to get rid of. In the meditation, if it can be used, use it. Otherwise, substitute with a meditation subject. Today I had an experience which leads me to believe it is possible to enter the jhanas through inside meditation. I was contemplating your statement, there is suffering but no sufferer. After some time, my legs became painful, but instead of moving them, I realized that my desire to move my legs was actually a form of craving, and therefore, if I did not crave to move my legs, then the suffering should not exist, since craving is the cause of suffering. By keeping the mind on the experience and the thought there is suffering, but no sufferer, it disappeared and did not recur. At the time, I felt a definite aha. It's quite true. It's totally true. It's a very true insight. There's only one cause for our dukkha and that's wanting, wishing particularly what we are all on about constantly is wanting things to be different from the way they are somebody sneezes, we don't want them to sneeze or coughing our legs hurt, we don't want it to hurt 
it's uh, cold, we don't want it to be cold, it's hot, we don't want it to be hot. Whatever it is, we would like it the way we think it ought to be. But we can't arrange the universe with the way we think it ought to be. There are six billion of us. We would have to have six billion separate universes, which we probably do have. And each one has to be the owner of the universe in order to arrange it properly. And that just is totally absurd. But we're still trying to do that. So this is a very true and a very important experience because it's so exactly what we're experiencing all the time. If something has an unpleasant feeling to it, we want to get away from it. If it has a pleasant feeling, we want to keep it. So here, letting go of the craving, we let go of the dukkha. Things are the way they are. And so that was exactly uh, the right way of handling it. And the suffering disappeared because, not because the leg all of a sudden became something different, the mind became different. The mind didn't want to change things anymore. It was okay the way it was. So that was an aha experience and therefore a very strong insight. And the strong insights are always connected with either anicca, dukkha, or anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, this one was dukkha, or the corelessness. In the beginning it said that it was possible to enter the jhanas through insight and uh, I presume that the person who's writing this then afterwards did a calm meditation. It doesn't say so, but I presume that that's the way it was. And here is um, something to remind us and it's a very nice reminder. Today is the 60th birthday of the Dalai Lama. And maybe we can send thoughts of peace, love, and joy for him and his people in Tibet and in exile. So we can do that in the loving-kindness meditation. We can wish him a happy birthday, and uh, which I'm sure he'll be very happy to receive. And uh, we can wish that the situation in Tibet um, evens itself out so that there are not, there's uh, no so much human suffering there. And at the same time, uh, send all our thoughts of love to him and to his people. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your own heart and see whether there's any sorrow, pain, grieving, resentment, rejection, worry or fear, dislike, envy, pride, feeling of 
superiority or inferiority anything at all that creates anxiety or unhappiness or restlessness and if you find any of these or anything like that let them float away as if they were dark clouds in the sky being pushed away by the wind and that's all they are dark clouds and then look again into your heart and see it as a wide and spacious shining open clear being within that you can fill with love and compassion And as you fill this spaciousness with love and compassion, you become aware that that, these feelings, fill you and embrace you. Now you pick out a person out of those that are present here whom you would especially like to give the gift of love and compassion. And you hand it to them as a most beautiful gift that you have. Look at your open and loving heart again. Clear, shining. And turn it towards your parents. And give them the gift of the warmth and the care which are love and compassion.
think of those people who are close to you with whom you might live and realize that your presence with an open spacious heart full of love and compassion creates a togetherness which will be of benefit and joy to everyone let them know how you feel Think of your friends, relatives, acquaintances, anyone who comes to mind. Be amongst them with your heart full of love and compassion, with warmth and care, and recognize what a beautiful togetherness that creates. Think of the people who are part of your life in your daily living and feel the warmth and care in your heart as you open it for all of them and see how each one of them becomes a lovable person. Think of a difficult person in your life or someone towards whom you have only feelings of indifference. And again, approach that person with your heart open, full of love and compassion warmth and care and see how that person changes into a friend
and now think of all the people whose lives are far more difficult than ours in hospitals in prisons in refugee camps in war zones crippled hungry blind without friends or shelter and let your heart expand and embrace them making them feel loved and wanted put your attention back on yourself and become aware of the beauty and clarity the openness of your heart which sends out warmth and care so that you are filled with it from head to toe surrounded by that embraced by those feelings none other are there only warmth and care to be based by these feelings creating a sense of well-being may people everywhere transform their hearts to contain only love and compassion <laughs> 